If you'll take your Bibles and open them to Hebrews chapter 6, we're going to start reading again at verse 13. If you'll join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. And uh, Hebrews chapter 6, starting at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give to us grace in this day. Help us to see that the waiting is part of the process and part of the plan. Help us to understand, God, that though we don't like to wait, it's good for us. Help us recognize that the patience in trusting you is part of the joy of the promise. Give us strength, give us purpose, give us hope. And help us trust Christ for all that we need and all that we are. We ask all of these things in Jesus' perfect and precious name. Amen. Amen. There is a profound relationship between waiting, suffering, and inheritance. There's much to be said about the need to wait in this microwave society. We don't like to wait. In fact, we refuse to do so. And this microwave reality is killing us in every way possible. We live terrible lives of reckless abandon and we want a magic pill that's going to heal all of our illnesses and fix our bad habits. We can eat how we want, live how we want, do what we want, and I'll take this pill and it'll all be better. And we keep searching for a pill and searching for something that's going to fix it because we don't want to wait or do the work. We want An endless credit card to satiate our restless, endless covetousness. And a guilt-free, get-out-of-jail card to allow us to do whatever we want and still have some form of God in our lives. One of the most popular songs on country radio right now is Drinking Beer and Talking God. Go figure. It just makes no sense to me that we want to live that way. And still we want the name of God in our mouths, we want the taste of God on our lips, but we don't want any of God in our lives. We don't want anything to do with him unless we can have him on our terms. Because we don't like the change that God requires us to engage in. We still need to understand that there are benefits of learning how to be content in the now. Content in the moment and in the powerful place of relying on God while waiting on his timing, instead of rushing forward and trying to bend the present moment into the shape of our flawed understanding of the future. Because, beloved, understand this. Our understanding of the future will always be flawed, especially the will of God concerning that future. Our understanding of it is always constantly, fundamentally, I would almost say irrevocably flawed until we are in his presence. We see through a glass darkly. But one day God will reveal all that he has been doing and it will be glorious in our sight. However, that day is not today. And this day has a particular challenge calling us to wait, to trust, to rely upon our God and know that he is working out his will for our good and his glory. It is important for us to remember, again, the context of this passage in Hebrews. It's referencing the the command of God to sacrifice Isaac. We looked at that the, the last time we were together a couple of weeks ago. 
And, and it's important for us to have that context in our mind because even though God had withdrawn the command to sacrifice Isaac and preserved him and provided for it, he gave to Abraham the promise that through Isaac his seed would be blessed and through Isaac the descent would come. But Abraham had one son of the promise. And he lived long enough to see his one son have two sons. But that's as far as it went. He he died still trusting God. Still believing that God would do what he said he would do. He died still hoping. Still waiting. And for us as Christians, we like to have our answers now. Thank you very much. We like to have God do what he said he's going to do on our timetable immediately, post-haste, Forthwith, no arguments. God, this is what I want, and this is when I want it. Thank you very much. And that seems to be the way that we try to live our lives. It seems to be the way that we think. It seems to be the way that we engage. It seems to be the way that we refuse to obey. Because we want what we want, and we want it now. And as as Christians, we have to recognize the truth that this is not a good way for us to live. Because, first of all, it's not how God tells us to live. And God should always be taken at his word. Amen? Is is it safe for us to say that if God has said it in his word, he means it? Yeah. No matter what, no matter how, no matter when, if God has said it, he means it. And that's what we have to live on. Look at me at Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs 3 And we're going to start at verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from him. I'm sorry, fear the Lord and depart from evil. (laughs) It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Honor the Lord with your possessions, with the first fruits of your increase, so that your barns will be filled with plenty, your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father the son in whom he delights. Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her proceeds are better than the profits of silver, her gain than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies, and all the things that you desire cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand, in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who retain her. If we believe that this is true, then it would stand to reason that our approach to life would be to look at the question in front of us, look at the conversation that's going on around us, see the issues that are on the table, and instead of ever injecting into the conversation, well, I think our only response should be, What does the Bible say? And if the Bible says it, then our conversation is over, except for saying, how do we implement obedience? If we believe that this is true, it really makes it simple. The problem is somewhere in us taking God at his word. The problem is somewhere in how we actually believe it, Or whether or not we're maybe a little bit confused about can God be trusted to do what he said regardless of what it looks like. The the proverb gives us so many things about how God promises blessing and how God promises 
strengthening and about how God promises his own presence and God promises the power of his own person to manifest himself in our lives. And yet, we won't trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean on his ways instead of ours. Instead, we look at our understanding. And this is a constant battle. And if we're we're not going to be honest about this battle, we're never going to make any gains. If we're not going to be honest about the fact that every single time we encounter a question, our natural default answer is to apply our own wisdom and to apply our own understanding and to apply our own approach and our own thinking. If we don't at least recognize that that's the tendency, we're never going to get anywhere. We have to acknowledge this so that we can fight against it. We have to discipline ourselves to continually come back to the one question that matters. What does the Bible say? Has God spoken? Has God spoken? Amen, he has. If you look up in the Old Testament, the word of God, you'll find a handful of instances. If you look up the voice of God in the Old Testament, you'll find over 150 variations of that phrase being referenced throughout the Old Testament. They relied heavily upon the voice of God. And the writer of Hebrews gives us that in in the first chapter. It says, in the olden days, God spoke through various times and in various ways and in various manners to the fathers. But now, in this day, he has spoken through his son Jesus, who is the word of God. And if we look at the word of God in the New Testament you'll find 50 or 60 different places where we're told to rely upon the Word of God. So there's a shift in the Old Testament to the New Testament telling us that how we're supposed to encounter our wisdom and our understanding is by a steadfast determination to find out what does the Word say. Because this is the revelation of God which has been given to us. He has spoken to us through Christ and through his word, which has been handed to us, and which is for us to actually engage with, as if it is the very word of God. Beloved, we have to, to, at the grassroots of our whole life, take into consideration and take into account that what God says in his word, he absolutely means. We have to live this. Which means that sometimes we have to look at his promises regardless of what our circumstances might feel like or look like. Because fundamentally, that's one of the places where this falls apart for us very quickly. I know God has said this, but, there's that word, but this is what I see in my life. Being the kind and compassionate person that I am, my answer is, yeah. (laughs) Your point is? This is what God has said. And there is really no but that gives us permission to change what God has said in light of our circumstances. And yet we always fall into that. I know God has said this, but this is how I feel. Okay, I understand how you feel, but your feelings are not the Word of God, and your feelings are not to be trusted over and above the Word of God. In fact, your feelings are to be subjected to the Word of God and brought into subjection to the Word of God because the feelings come from the heart, and the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We're commanded to take God at his word regardless of what things look like. And we're, we're commanded to take God at his word knowing that God is at work bringing about his purpose and his plan and his will. Abraham messed up trusting God for a seed, for a son, and we have the war between the Arab nations and Israel which changed the face of the world forever. One man's unfaithfulness, one man's inconsistency, one man's refusal to take God at his word. And oh my goodness, what a mess we have. 
<laughs> the, the question that's in front of us is, does God tell us what he wants, and does God always command us to do what he said, or does God allow us to argue and to squawk and to sidestep and to second guess and do whatever we want to do? Which one is God telling us he commands us to do? To obey. To look at his word, to take him at his word, and to believe him no matter what. Here's what you need to know. God will never relent on his plan or his purpose in your life. He will never settle for a second-rate plan. He will never allow you to thwart his will. He will never give you any place where you can do something that he is not purposed in your life. You need to know that God is going to work out His will. And so sometimes the things that we do get us in a place that might be uncomfortable. 1 Samuel 15.29 says, The strength of Israel will not lie nor relent. He's not a man that he should relent. And if we look at that contextually, Samuel is telling Saul, You've been removed as king. And God's not going to change his mind. I've taken you out. I'm going to find somebody else. I have found somebody else. I'm going to give him the kingdom. It's not you. And there's no way in the world that you're going to change my mind. This is the context of that statement. Proverbs 19.21 says, There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. So what God intends, God's going to do. And in the New Testament, Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So we need to understand at the outset that God is doing what he intended to do all the time without exception. And that he's going to accomplish his will, and he's going to accomplish his will on his timetable and according to his eternal purpose And according to his eternal plan. And he is under absolutely no obligation to tell you what that timetable, purpose, or plan is. He doesn't have to tell you any of it. What he tells you is, this is what I'm calling you to do. This is what I have told you to do. And I expect you to do it. Period. Now, sometimes because he's gracious and sometimes because he's kind and sometimes because he knows what we are, he gives us some glimpse into the purpose and some glimpse into the plan and some little bit of understanding that might help us trust him in the moment. But more often than not, God just calls us to trust him. More often than not, God just tells us, take me at my word, trust me, because you're not capable of understanding all the pieces that go into the plan that I'm working out. And if I gave you all the information that you want, your brain would explode. (laughs) Just pause for a minute and think about the minutia that's required to make the world turn. Just, Just think for just a minute that outside, under the ground right now, little crocuses are going, it's time to wake up. All over. And all the little cellular paths that are required to make the little green things pop out of the ground is in the will and the purpose and the plan and the direct control of the God who is feeding the sparrows and causing those millions of geese that fly over us all directions this year because they can't make up their mind where they're going to eat. Just think about what it takes to feed all those geese. And still God feeds them. And still they're flying every which way because they can't make up their mind where they're going. And, and it's, it's this most remarkable reality. And that's just two little examples that God's keeping in track for all the things that he's doing in the world at the same time that he's governing his plan for your life with all the components that are required to make every little thing come to be in the way that it's required to be. To work out his plan according to what he has purposed from the foundations of eternity. Now, I'm going to stop talking about that right now because already I see smoke coming out of ears as brains are almost about to explode. It's important for us to understand that God is bigger, that God is stronger, 
that God is greater than we can possibly imagine. And it's also important for us to understand that he does not view our timetable in the same way that we do. He views time as a construct that he created so that we could interact with the world. You ever stop and think about that? God is not constrained by time. He invented it. Time is made for our benefit so that the information that we live with comes to us in a linear fashion because that's all we can handle. We can't put together all the pieces that are required. We can't manage the informational stream that would allow us to see things in all possible reality. That's God's business. He has created time so that we interact with the world in a linear fashion, one moment at a time. And beloved, if you're not in touch with yourself enough to know that this one moment is all you can handle, let me tell you, this one moment is all you can handle. You can't go any further than this. This one place where we are, this one time where we are, this is the mind and the will of God for us at this moment. And this is the place where we have to engage with it. We have to understand that God sees it differently than we do. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> 2 Peter chapter 3 Starting at verse 8, Peter writes this. Beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, this is because the church, at the time that Peter wrote this, was concerned that God had forgotten that he'd promised Jesus was going to come back. They were concerned that Jesus had perhaps come back secretly. They were concerned that God had lost track of things they were concerned that things were not as they expected them to be. And I remind you, this was 2,000 years ago. And they didn't have cell phones to tell them that nothing is as it should be. They didn't have a constant stream of media poured into their brain, telling them how bad the whole world is everywhere, all the time, regardless. And they didn't have all the other little distractions that we built for our lives to try and keep us from doing the things that actually matter. They didn't have any of that thing going on. And they still had the same problem that we have. They were having a hard time trusting God. And what Peter points out to them is that God's going to return in the time that he intended to return, so don't worry about it. And that God's going to bring the earth to its foregone conclusion, so don't worry about it. And I think it's funny that twice in that passage we have the statement that global warming is a real thing. It's just going to happen a whole lot faster than people think. And when it happens... There's no stopping it. There's no influencing it. There's no changing it. Because God will burn this earth up. We're not doing it. He will. Amen. Ultimately, what we need to understand is that God is working out His purpose and His plan on His timetable. So don't stretch the analogy a day and a thousand years too far. I've heard people do it. Days a thousand years, that means that we're in the third day and Jesus rose from the grave on the third day and therefore we can know that he's coming back now because it's the third day. No. Don't, don't play those games. You stretch the analogy to the point of breaking at that point. Peter's simply saying, God sees time differently than you do. And he's working out his will according to his purpose and according to his plan. 
about his return. But that also means, and don't miss this, that he's working out his will and he's working out his purpose according to his promises that you're waiting on right now. According to the things that you're begging him for, according to the things that you're expecting him to do, according to the things that he may have promised you, he'll work them out in his time. And he'll work them out according to his purpose. And our calling is to trust him in that process. Our calling is to believe that God will do exactly what he will do and exactly what he promised to do and he will not fail no matter what it looks like at the moment. Because we're experiencing things in a linear fashion, one moment at a time, one breath at a time, and all we can see is the preparation that's going on around us and it feels like it's about to fall on us and kill us. But what God is doing is something bigger. And these moments are important. Because God always works towards His intended outcome. Look at Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30. And Isaiah chapter 30, we're going to start reading at verse 18. God says this. Therefore, the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. Therefore, he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. And blessed are all those who wait on him. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. And though the Lord gives to you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore, but your eyes shall see your teachers. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it, whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. You will also defile the covering of your images of silver and the ornament of your molded images of gold. And you will throw them away as an unclean thing. He will say to them, get away. Then he will give the rain for your seed, which you sow in the ground, and the bread of the increase of the earth, and it will be fat and plentiful. In that day your cattle will feed in large pastures. Likewise, the oxen and the young donkey that work the ground will eat cured fodder, which has been winnowed with the shovel and the fan. And there will be on every high mountain and on every high hill rivers and streams of waters in the great day of slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold, as the light of seven days in the day that the Lord binds up the bruises of his people and heals the stroke of their wound. What a promise. But don't miss the fact that God says, before I bring that promise to fruition, I will give to you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction. Because God is very willing to give to us temporary difficulties to produce eternal good. And this is because God is not looking at things in the same way that we are. If he's not viewing time in the same way, it's also true that he's not viewing our circumstances in the same way. We look at a circumstance in this moment because we experience time in a linear fashion. This moment is all we know. So when something bad or painful happens in this moment, we are a collective chicken little. The sky is falling, the sky is falling, the sky is falling because this terrible thing happened right now. We are not very good at keeping our perspective. We're not very good at remembering that terrible things have happened and that terrible things will happen and that terrible things have been promised and that God is sovereign over all of them and that nothing will happen outside of his control. We're not good at remembering that there is not one rogue atom in all of creation, but that everything is doing exactly as God ordained it to be at this moment and at this time. It's important for us to remember, then, that if the things that happen in this moment are painful, or we view them as bad, 
They are designed by God for a different reason. They are designed by God for our good. They are designed by God to do something in us that will bring about an eternal good. So look at me at Joshua chapter 24, verse 14. There's going to be a verse in the middle of this that is probably recognizable to you. Many people have this little sign on their houses. But let's get some context. Joshua 24, starting at verse 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord. Now let me give you some background because I wasn't going to read the whole chapter. Just half of it. (laughs) Joshua has just recounted to Israel the word of the Lord, telling them about his faithfulness to bring them out of Egypt, to bring them into the land of Canaan, to deliver to them their inheritances. The conquest of Canaan is largely over. There are still some places that need to be captured, places that need to be subdued. But remember when Israel came in, God said, I'm not going to give it to you all at once because you couldn't handle it. It would get out of control. So I'm going to give it to you a little at a time, and therefore you can establish dominion over it, and you can have your inheritance, and it will be a blessing to you instead of a cursing. Kind of fits with the whole premise of we need to learn to wait. Because when we want what we want, and we want it right now, and our reach often exceeds our grasp, and what we find we have, we can't manage, because we have too much, because we reached for too much, because we have too many things, because we have no time, we have no ability, we have no perspective. So God, in his wisdom, gave the promised land to Israel a little at a time. And as Joshua is nearing the end of his life, the conquest of Canaan is not completed, but it is well begun. All of the tribes have a foothold in their inheritance, and there is still work for them to do. And he is giving them this final instruction as he's approaching the end of his life. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us up and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before all all the people, including the Amorites who dwell in the land. We will also serve the Lord our God, for he is our God. But Joshua says, you cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. And he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. So Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, he said, Put away the foreign gods which are among you, and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. So as Joshua's having this conversation with them, in my mind, he's looking out at all of the little statues of Mary and Ashtaroth and other little things that are out on the front porches of all of the people who are saying, we love God. And he's saying, no, you don't. Don't make this covenant, because the covenant will destroy you if you're not earnest about it. Take God at his word. Believe him. He's arguing with them. He's pleading with them. He's telling them, you guys are taking something on that you need to be clear about. And they continue to say, yes, we will. Yes, we will. Yes, we will. Now, here's what you need to remember before we read on. God is saving a people out of Israel. He has a people. And not all of his people are currently walking in obedience. And they're going to have to walk through some really difficult times to purge them of their idolatries because their idolatries are still powerfully among them. Remember what we read in in Isaiah? You will defile the, the silver on your images. You will put away the golden things. Isaiah was four or 500 years after Joshua 
and they're still fighting the idolatry. A little foreshadowing ahead of what we read already. This is a problem. This is a problem that still strives against us today. Because we still have our idols. We just don't necessarily erect little statues in our yard. It's not our thing. We're Baptists. We do other things. But we need to understand the truth here. Our hearts are just as divided as theirs were. And Joshua's giving them really good advice. Be earnest with your God. Because he's earnest with you. And he's going to refine his people. And he doesn't care what it's going to take to do it. So 800 years in the future, Israel goes into captivity. Israel comes out. We understand? God will do what is needed to accomplish his purposes in our lives. It was true in their time, and it's true in our time. Therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods which are among you, and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and made them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. Then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness to us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us, and it shall therefore be a testimony to you, lest you deny your God. So Joshua let the people depart, each to his own inheritance. It's going to be hard for them because there is a price tag coming. And they are not going to like the price when it is delivered. There will be misery. There will be bondage. There will be hundreds of years of the judges where each man does what is right in his own eyes and God is forgotten and God will let them go into bondage and raise up a deliverer. They will serve God during the days of the deliverer and then after the deliverer departs, they will go back to seeking their other gods. This cycle continues. This cycle continues. This cycle continues. When the kings come, then God gives them good kings. God gives them bad kings. The people still continue to seek after other gods. They still continue other things. And finally, the captivity Israel, the northern ten tribes, are carried away completely. They never recover. Judah and Benjamin are carried away to Babylon. They come back, finally purged of their idolatries. And you've got to ask yourself the question, was God managing all of these things to deliver his promise? Yes, yes he was. Which means that the very painful circumstances that Israel endured were endured because God is doing what God is doing. So there's a perspective question that we need to address. We have to consider the price. And I promise you this. You will not ever be asked to pay any price which is more than you will gain in the end. Whatever God requires of you to endure or to lay down or to suffer in this life, will be recompensed in eternity far more than you can ever imagine. Amen. There, there will never be anything which is done to you which is not worth what you're gaining through it. There will be never anything that God brings into your life that will not be more than recompensed by what He does. Because no matter the price we pay for the waiting, it doesn't even come close to the price paid by God for the provision that He is giving to us. You need to understand what God paid to deliver what he's promising. Because our price is about our own rebellion. It's about our own stubbornness. It's about the refining process that's going on in our lives. Those are our prices. And those consequences are 100% because of our own rebellion and our own refusal to obey God. But God's price was the death of Christ. He purchased you by his own blood. He purchased you on the cross. He endured the wrath of God on your behalf. He endured hell for your sake. While he was on the cross, God poured out 
hell upon him. He endured that for you. And there is nothing that you will ever be asked to do which can even remotely stand on the same continent with what God has done. Not in the same universe with what God has done. And yet we whine about our difficulties as if they are the grandest thing in the world. Beloved, understand some perspective here. If God gave His Son to secure your salvation... Do you think that it is even conceivable that he will not do everything and anything needful to accomplish what he begun? He will absolutely fulfill his word. And he will absolutely fulfill everything that he set out to do. And there is nothing, and I mean nothing, that will ever keep him from accomplishing what his son purchased. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19, we find this. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So Paul puts it a little stronger than I did. He said, you don't even belong to yourself. You've been purchased. You are the purchased possession of your king. And therefore, what you do with your body and what you do in your spirit need to be in complete agreement with what your king requires of you. That's a fairly stiff instruction. So when we're not living that way, is God going to care enough about his investment to challenge us and to pull us back towards himself? You bet he will. All the time. He is always at work fulfilling his will in his children. Look at Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 Verse 28 says, Therefore, as Paul's speaking to the elders at Ephesus, he says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So we have this statement from Paul that God has given to us men who are required to watch over us and to care for us and to feed us and to teach us the truth. And he's done that which we're trying to do right now in this place and in this format, because he purchased the church by his own blood. And he is determined to secure his own investment. Well, listen to how Peter describes it. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. 1 Peter chapter 1. Starting at verse 17, Peter writes this. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout your time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He was indeed foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times through you, for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. Beloved, there is no price that is too much for the gain that we are promised. Second Peter chapter 4 and verse 12, Peter writes this, well, that's an interesting thing. There's no chapter 4. How about 1 Peter? <laughs> 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. 
Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing had happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. And if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So, how do we pursue gaining the reward? Well, we start by understanding that there are tremendous gains to be had by learning to trust, by learning to obey, by learning to take God at his word and endure whatever we endure for the purpose that God has brought it into our lives. You can smooth the process tremendously if you will just look at your difficulties with this single question in mind. God, how are you using this to make me into the image of Christ? Okay? No matter what you're facing, no matter what difficulty you're encountering, whether it's a problem at work, a problem in your marriage, a problem with your finances, a problem with your health, a problem with any relationship in your life, you can ask the question like this, God, what are you intending this circumstance to do to conform me to the image of Christ? And I promise you there will be an answer. Because that is always God's purpose. Whatever he's doing, he is doing for the purpose of conformity in our lives so that we will look like Jesus, so that we will act like Jesus, so that we will think like Jesus, so that we will love like Jesus. He is doing what he is doing for the purpose of changing us into the likeness and the image of God. And there is, beyond that, tremendous gain to be acquired by learning to wait. You say, but it's really hard right now and nothing's going the way I want it to. I understand. If it would be helpful at all, I would sit down and compare miseries with you. But it wouldn't be. But what the scripture tells us is that if we will learn to wait, then we will learn something not only of ourselves, but more importantly, we will learn something of God. Look at me at Psalm chapter 25. Psalm chapter 25. I don't really have time to unpack this, but I'm just going to throw a few things at you. Psalm 25, we're just going to read a few verses, starting at verse 3. Indeed, let no one who waits upon you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Show me your ways, O Lord, and teach me your paths. Lead me in your truths and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. So the psalmist says that by waiting on God, there are some things that he is expecting to receive from God in the waiting. And that is to know the ways and the paths of God, to learn to understand his truth, and to be taught by God what it means to be saved. I don't know about you, but those are some really powerful things that I wouldn't mind learning. Now, having said that, I recognize that the environment in which I learned them is waiting in difficulty. So let's think for just a minute about Proverbs 3 and ask ourselves, Do I really trust in the Lord with all my heart and lean not on my own ways? Lean not on my own understanding? Am I willing, like Abraham, to endure patiently and obtain the promise? Or am I determined to go my own way and walk in my own wisdom and have what I can build in my own life by my own strength? 
Because at the end of the day, that is two completely divergent paths. And if you sat down and compared miseries with the person on each path, you would find a startling distinction. Those who pursue God's way might have their temporary miseries, but they're filled with grace and peace and contentment even in the midst of their sorrows. Amen. And those who walk in the ways of their own understanding have medicine chests full of magic pills that do nothing. Among other things. <laughs> we need to recognize the truth that God gives us great power in doing things His way. And a corollary of that truth is the reality that God's purpose and God's ways are always better than anything we can imagine. Amen. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, As it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. There is not a man alive who has even the foggiest idea of what God has waiting for us. And that's pretty cool. Because I've heard some spectacular visions of what people think God is like. And what heaven is like. And, and I'm not even talking about the endless day of golf or the endless day of fishing or the endless day of sitting on the porch drinking beer talking God. I don't know, whatever. I'm talking about people who honestly have considered this and given real thought based on Scripture and have poured forth such wondrous glory. And, and God plainly says, I has not seen, ear has not heard, heart has not conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. Take your best shot. Ground it in Scripture. And what God has done... Hmm. Well, how about how Paul puts it in Ephesians? Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. I'm going to read that again. It's Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. You see, the heart of the Father is always for His people, for their good. Look, I know that right now there are things in your life that are misery. I don't have to know your circumstances to know that that's true. And I know that that's true because you're breathing. <laughs> there are things in your life that are misery. And there are things that if you had the power to wave a magic wand, you would send so far away from you that you wouldn't even wish them on your worst enemies because they're that bad. But I'm going to tell you the truth. If you have a vision for what God is doing in those miseries, you would keep them. You would look at them and you would say, thank you, God, for this. Because this is producing in me glory. And your glory is worth more than my pain. Abraham trusted God. He believed God. He took God at His word. And he did that because he had an experience of God that was deeply personal and deeply profoundly changing. But I want you to understand something. Your experience of God is far greater than Abraham ever dreamt. Because you have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of you. And you have the Word of God in front of you that you can read with the Spirit's guidance and you can understand His truth. And you have the promise of having been adopted into the family of God. You are His child. And the things that God is doing in you so far surpass anything that Abraham had even the slightest glimpse of. And they are worth the loss of all things. They're worth whatever misery you're enduring. They're worth whatever sorrow you're suffering. They're worth whatever pain you're trying to manage. And what I want you to take away from this morning is this simple truth. God is calling you to trust Him in it. Not to try and escape from it, but to trust Him in it. 
because he's ordained this moment for the good of your soul. He's ordained this time for the good of your life, for the good of your soul, for the good of your family, for the good of everything that he's doing in you. This is not a mistake. This is not a circumstance that God really wished he could have avoided. This is the plan and the purpose and the will of a sovereign God. And it's for your good. Because the Father loves you and he always has your good at heart. Jeremiah 29 Starting at verse 10. Quickly, I'll try and get this done. Jeremiah 29, beginning at verse 10. Jeremiah writes this. Again, some of these verses are familiar. Thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. You will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. And I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. We read those verses and people cherry pick that one little verse out of the middle of that. And they say, see, God will never do anything painful in your life. And they completely miss the fact that this is on the front end of 70 years of captivity. And God says, I've driven you into captivity and I've driven you all over the face of the earth and I've done it because I have good for you and I love you and I know the plans that I have for you and I know the purposes that I have for you and they are good plans. So endure this time for a good purpose. That's the promise inherent in Jeremiah 29. It requires us to have a slightly different perspective. Because this moment will pass, but the gain that's promised will certainly last. It means that we cannot fret over time or distance. Inches make miles and seconds make years. I've I've had this conversation. I've been thinking about this for a while, and I keep telling that to Joyce. And she said, yeah, that's a lot of them. And she's right, so we did the math. It's 63,360 inches to make a mile and 31,536,000 seconds to make a year. But I want you to understand this. Just like that, they're passing. And just like that, we are always getting closer to the promise of God. You hear me? Don't fret over inches. And don't fret over seconds. And don't fret over time. And don't fret over distance. God is doing what God is doing. And nothing can stop Him. Nothing can thwart Him. Nothing can change His will. Nothing can change His purpose. And He will give His promise. You hold fast to His promise. And in doing so, you hold fast to the God who gave it. Psalm 18.35 says, You have given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. And Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. And I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Beloved, that's our God's promise. That's what he's doing in your life right now. No matter what it feels like, no matter what your fear, no matter what your difficulty, he is upholding you by his omniscient, omnipotent, sovereign right hand. And he will not fail to fulfill his purpose in your life. God, I ask that you give to us grace to believe you. Give us a heart that takes you at your word and give us, God, an ability to see your glory in the midst of whatever we're facing. I pray that you would give us grace to endure the difficulties and to triumph through them, God.
I pray that you would sustain us and that you would help us to walk in faith and help us, God, to remember that these days are ordained by you for our good and your glory. Bring it to pass and let it be all that you have purposed it to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.